Hey everyone and welcome to this special podcast presentation from Ossert's 2014 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. Big thanks to our Ossert coverage sponsors, Arbor Networks, Datacom, TSS and FireEye. You guys rock, you guys and gals rock. And uh, you're about to hear a recording of Peter Goodman's speech here, which is all about crypto. Well, it's kinda about crypto. With newspapers filled to the brim with stories about the NSA subverting crypto standards, Peter asks us whether that really matters, whether or not maybe we're missing the point. Why would an attacker bother breaking the crypto when they can just bypass it? Peter is well positioned to do this talk. He's a researcher at the Department of Computer Science at the University of Auckland and works on the design and analysis of cryptographic security architectures and security usability. He helped write PGP, he's authored a number of papers and RFCs on security and encryption, and is the author of the open source Cryptlib Security Toolkit. And luckily for us, he's a fairly regular guest on Risky Business as well. Uh, so here he is, Peter Goodman's OSCERT Plenary. Enjoy. Okay, so um, for many years the US government has been giving us the following advice. If you see something, say something. So this guy saw something and said something. And what he pointed out that, you know, there's been a bunch of people saying, well, the government's out to get you for a long time and they were regarded as tinfoil hats and so on. But no, they actually, in some cases, really are out to get you. Uh, one of the main programs that they use for this is something called Bull Run. It's funded to the tune of about 250 to $300 million a year, which, when you think about it, that's a pretty serious amount of funding to get into your private data. And so one of the things they uh, have done with that is that they've developed capabilities against basically the protocols up there, which is pretty much everything that's used on the net which involves encryption. You notice that PGP and SMIME aren't in that list. Once they find someone using it, they'll also add that to the list. Um, so what they've got, this is a summary from one of the programs, is they've got a comprehensive effort to defeat network security and privacy and to defeat the encryption technologies used in network communications. So these are all excerpts from some of these classified documents. The response of this is, oh no, our crypto's dead, we've got to do something about that. And one of the ways we can fix it, obviously, is we'll just use bigger keys. They must have broken the crypto because our keys are too short, so we'll just use bigger keys and then everything will be fine. Or at least we'll do something, anything, just panic and do something because, uh, you know, the NSA's broken our crypto. Well, not really. Uh, using crypto isn't actually going to save you. There's a diagram of the kinds of things that, um, the way in which crypto is used and what attackers typically go for. So what they're going to do is they're going to attack the user, they're going to attack the user interface, the application, the protocol, the bits on the wire, anything but the crypto. Um, Adi Shamir, who is the S in RSA, has actually come up with something that's often quoted as Shamir's law, and it says crypto is bypassed and not penetrated. It's much easier to simply bypass it. Ignore the crypto, bypass it, you don't have to bother penetrating it. An example of this is games controls, consoles. So all of these games consoles, all the major consoles use pretty serious amounts of cryptography. Um, including signed executables, encrypted storage, full media encryption, memory encryption, um, on-die key storage, digi digitally signed executables, so they're, they're verified before they're loaded and run. This is a pretty serious amount of encryption. If you'd gone back about 10 years and put up this feature list to someone and said, what am I describing here? They would have said it's got to be some NSA-designed, really high-security crypto box. But no, it's just a standard games console. So they're using really serious amounts of encryption. All of these have been hacked without actually bothering to attack the encryption or without bothering to break the encryption. For example, Amazon Kindle 2. Okay, they signed all their binaries with a thousand bit key. Um, very simple bypass on that. Simply replace the Amazon key with your own one and then you can load anything you want. 
Um, HTC Thunderbolt, again, signed binary, signed kernel, whatever. Remove the code that does the signature checking. At that point, anything can load and run. This is a particularly cool one. So there's vast numbers of these exploits, but there's, uh, there's some, some of the more interesting ones I've got up here. Motorola cell phones. So these, we, these were really, really careful. They hashed the pre-boot loader, and then they used a Mac, which is a keyed hash function. So unless you know the key, you can't generate your own Mac value. They used digital signatures, everything like that. The attackers completely ignored all that and went for something called trust zones. So the, um, some of the ARM CPUs have this thing called trust zone, which is this high security hardware trusted, very, very secure because the manufacturer says so, um, kernel that you can run your crypto in. So the attack, this high security trusted kernel, compromised that and then attacked from inside the secure zone out into the insecure zone and then bypassed all the security on the bootstrap loader. Um, Samsung Galaxy. So everyone else so far have listed all the key sizes, the 1,000-bit keys. So they decided we need to round up twice the usual number of keys, go to 2,000-bit keys, and then we'll be twice as secure. So what the attackers did in this was kind of cool too. So they modified the, the address at which the firmware loads so that when you load the firmware in order to verify it, it loads over the top of the signature checking code, therefore wiping it out, and it runs immediately without any signature check happening. Um, Nikon cameras, they have a 1,000-bit key. It was hard-coded into the um, camera firmware, so once you download the camera firmware for any one of the camera cameras, then you've compromised every camera of that uh, kind. Canon cameras were even worse. They used something called HMAC, which is a symmetric value. So both the signer and the verifier need to know the secret key. So if you can verify this, you can also forge signatures on it. But in any case, you didn't need to do that because they also coded it onto the firmware. Um, Apple Airport Express, same thing, 2,000-bit keys, recover it from the firmware. Um, various bits and pieces. Um, I'll, I'll skip some of these. Um, but <coughs> Google Chromecast, um, you didn't even need to modify the keys or muck around with in any way because they very carefully verified the signature and then ignored the return value of the signature checking function. So you could modify the data and it would just ignore the fact that the signature was invalid. Um, Google TV, so there's a whole range of different devices from different manufacturers and everyone got it wrong in a slightly different manner. Um, debug modes, you can run unapproved binaries. Some of the more exotic ones is that they used uh, NAND flash memory to store the firmware. And what happens is you use uh, DMA, direct memory access, to move the data from the NAND flash into memory. So you remap the memory registers in the flash controller, so instead of loading it into user space, you, over, you write it over the top of the kernel, and again, at that point, you own the device. Um, Android code signing, this is kind of a cool one too. So basically Android APKs are effectively zip files. You load the zip file, you extract bits of data out of it, which are signatures and so on and so forth, um, and then you verify it. So the way this was attacked is that the zip file extraction is done with a Java hash map, and basically every entry in this hash map can have one single entry. So if you create an artificial zip file, you can't create it with a normal zip tool, you need custom software to do this. We have two files that have exactly the same name, the first one will overwrite the second one in the hash map, and so only the second one will be verified. However, the code that then processes the zip file is written in C. It recognizes these things as two separate files. It loads all the files, assuming they've been verified by the Java code. One of the two files hasn't. Um, and at that point, you can run unverified code. Um, iPhone, iPad, iOS, there's just, I could, I could do an entire talk on these, so I'm just gonna wave my hands and say, you know, there's lots of stuff there. Uh, Windows RT and Windows 8, so this UEFI, which is this high security firmware that was introduced for that. Um, and again, there's various ways of bypassing that. One of the things is you can patch the actual, the, the spy firmware, uh, sorry, the patch the firmware via SPI, which is a, this, the interface used to load the thing, so that you're loading uh, modified firmware, which doesn't bother with the signature checks. There's various control bits and control registers you can patch to say, don't bother verifying the firmware, or the firmware's already been verified, even though it hasn't. 
Um, another neat one, Chaos Communications Congress 2011 badge. So these, these are active badges, and they were running um, code using an algorithm called XXT, which is a relatively highly secure algorithm, 128-bit key, and there were various exploits that bypassed the uh, need to use this. So basically, they, they got loaded into the badge, they extracted the key, and from then on, you could do anything you want. Um, it is, you know, as I say, there, it's probably some sign of the, the end times when your conference badge actually has a rootkit. Um, Xbox attacks. This was a very neat one. Um, there's a guy called Bunny Rang who wrote a book about this called Hacking the Xbox. So they made various assumptions that attackers could do various things. One of the assumptions was that the hypertransport bus moved data at such a high speed that you couldn't actually pull data off the bus. And there were hypertransport bus analyzers which could do this, and they existed in sort of development labs at semiconductor manufacturers. And it was unlikely, for example, that Intel would use their labs to actually attack the Xbox. And so what an MIT student did was he looked at the um, signaling on the bus and he recognized that HT, the hypertransport signaling, signaling looks a lot like LVDS, which is a high-speed um, digital signaling protocol. So you can use a cheap off-the-shelf LVDS transceiver to actually read the data off the bus. But then it's coming in at such a rate that nothing generally available uh, will be able to process it. So what he did is he used an FPGA, which is a field programmable gate array. So it's a piece of programmable hardware. It wasn't fast enough if you use the standard compilers. But if you sit there with an oscilloscope and actually time the data paths through the chip and find out the fastest data paths and, and by hand choose those paths instead of any other data paths, and a bunch of other tricks he used, then you, and you overclock the FPGA, which is something that isn't, you know, it's standard practice for CPUs, but overclocking an FPGA isn't normally done. It's just very bizarre to do that. Um, so basically by using all these tricks like the Kobayashi Maru thing, by playing outside the rules and by cheating, um, he managed to pull the data off this hypertransport bus and because of that attack the original Xbox. Um, later attacks used different tricks. So there's something that's been used by smart card hackers for a long time. A lot of the original smart cards used, well, and even current ones, still used relatively puny 8-bit CPUs like an 8051. These are meant for embedded microcontrollers. They can boot off internal secure ROM or external ROM. So you just trick the CPU into booting off external ROM, and at that point you own the system. Um, there's various architectural quirks in the CPU. So Microsoft originally developed the Xbox using AMD CPUs, and then they shipped them with Intel CPUs because they gave them a better deal. There were slightly different um, undocumented hardware features and glitches and so on and so forth. Um, and basically, yeah, they used various tricks to attack the system. Um, PS3, again, this was kind of an interesting one. So unlike the Xbox, they didn't pull the data off the bus, they just glitched it. So the PS3 would write to memory, they would glitch the memory write, so the cache would have, which was in inside the CPU, would have the correct value, the memory would have a slightly different value, and at that point, you, you don't know what's in memory anymore, and when you try and use that or read it back later, you've got a different value from what you thought you wrote, and so you can use that to bypass the security. Xbox 360, another glitch attack. Um, you glitch the result of a comparison so that it always returns true, so even if the data's been modified, it looks like it hasn't. So these are, you know, relatively old 15 to 20 year old smart card attacks. Smart card hackers have been doing this for a long time. What happened in the 1990s is that Sky TV trained a whole generation of smart card attackers by broadcasting Star Trek The Next Generation to the UK, but not to continental Europe. And so they had the strong incentive to break these Sky smart cards. And because they started out with relatively weak security, they would break that. Sky would improve the security, they would break that, and so on and so forth. So they incrementally trained an entire generation of hackers in doing these hardware attacks. And these same 20-year-old you know, attacks are now being applied to more modern hardware using crypto. Okay, so let's look at some actual metrics. How unnecessary is it uh, to attack the crypto? 
there's a guy um, called Dan Gear who's kind of a security philosopher, and he's pointed out that any security technology whose effectiveness can't be empirically measured is indistinguishable from blind luck. In other words, you put in this high security crypto box or security box in general, unless you can measure how effective that is, it's basically just luck whether it's actually working or not. You can't tell whether that's having any effect or not. So about uh, one and a half years ago, this sort of who's who of large companies actually performed this experiment for us. They didn't know they were performing an experiment, but they performed this experiment for us um, to see how unnecessary crypto is. These are some of the better known examples of the companies. There was many, many more. Um, what happened was that for something called DCIM email signing, which is, depending on who you listen to, is supposed to stop spam or doesn't stop spam or does various things. I don't want to get involved in that argument. But about 12,000 organizations were using this DCIM signing. 4,000 of those were using toy keys. So these were keys so weak, including the ones on the previous slide, they were so weak that some individual guy with a laptop could have broken them. Now you look at this, okay, if this crypto was so weak, why didn't anybody bother attacking it? And the answer is, it wasn't necessary. Um, there were so many ways to render decom effective that even though the crypto could have been broken by some kid with a laptop, uh, nobody bothered because uh, it was so easy to bypass it rather than to attack it. And then you get back to Shamir's law, crypto is bypassed, not penetrated. So what if you use really, really strong crypto? Um, AES has a bunch of different key sizes. The one that's usually used is 128-bit key, but let's use a 256-bit key because we want keys that go to 11, and we encrypt that image. Using the most common encryption mode, um, ECB mode, you're going to get that out of it. So you've used incredibly strong encryption, keys that go to 11, and yet you can probably still figure out what the original data was before it was encrypted. So simply assuming we're going to sprinkle magic crypto over this and we're secure doesn't necessarily work. What about HSMs, hardware security modules? These are incredibly high security modules, typically used by, um, well, the major users are banks and CAs to store their root keys. Everything's locked up inside this hardware module. They're tamper responsive. They've got all sorts of security features. Here's how they're used for PIM processing. Uh, to generate a PIN, you take the customer's account data, uh, the primary account number or PAN, and you encrypt it under something called a PIN derivation key, and that gives you the PIN. The PIN is a hexadecimal value, a couple of digits in the range 0 to F hexadecimal. To turn that into a decimal value, you use something called a decimalization table, and this basically just maps the hex digits into decimal digits. Here's an example of how that works. So you encrypt the pan, and you get this hex value 2A3F. You look it up in the decimalization table, and you get 2036. You've now got a decimal pin that can be entered. Um, the reason why you have these lookup tables is different banks use different ways of mapping the uh, pins, so you've got to have a user-defined lookup table. And if you've got a customer-defined pin, that gives you a fixed pin. To have a customer-defined pin where the customer can set their own pin, you add a decimal offset to the actual pin value. And this is stored on the card. Uh, it's not a security problem because uh, you don't know the pin, so without the pin it doesn't matter what the offset is because it's just a random value. So to verify the pin, you take this encrypted pin block that comes from the ATM, you feed it into this HSM, the hardware security module, very high secure. It does all the processing in there, and then it spits back a result saying failure or success. No keys, no pins, no plain text ever leaves this hardware security module, so it's completely secure. Well, not necessarily. Uh, I mentioned earlier that these decimalization tables are customer-defined because different banks use different ones. So what you do is you modify the table. So what this particular table does is it maps 0 into 1 as well as mapping a 1 into 1. So basically you're losing one particular digit. You enter the pin block. If the pin block still verifies, even though you've modified all 0 values, so then they've now become 1s, you know that the pin contains no 0 digits. And then you walk down the entire table doing that for each possible digit, and now you know which digits the pin contains and which digits the pin does not contain. But you don't know which location they're in. 
To do that, you adjust the pin offset. There's a second way of doing this. So basically, you use the pin offset, which is the, the value used to turn the fixed pin into the custom user, the customer defined pin. And you use that to cancel out the decimalization table change you've made. So decimalization table turns zeros into ones. You then, on the um, pin offset, you also turn zeros into ones, and that change then cancels out. So taking the pin of 2036, which was from the previous slides, and assume just for demonstration purposes, you're using an offset of all zeros. So try it with an offset 0001. The HECM reports failure. 0010, failure. 0100, success. So you know at that point there's a zero digit in there. And then you go down each digit in the pin, and now you know not only which digits are in the pin, but their position within the pin. So now you've recovered the entire pin without decrypting anything, without compromising the HSM, without gaining access to encryption keys or anything like that. So basically in all this list, uh, the number of attacks that actually broke the crypto, that broke the crypto algorithms was zero. And the number that bypassed them were everything else. So no matter how strong the crypto was, no matter how big, you know, 1,000-bit keys, 2,000-bit keys, whatever, um, the attackers simply walked around it. So, okay, getting back to bull run. Um, You've got news reports from the New York Times saying the NSA hacked into target computers and governments were coerced by the government into handing over encryption keys. So let's look at some of the stuff that happened there. Um, you'd think the NSA must have really, really super-duper hackers to be able to do this. Well, not necessarily. Uh, this is a one-week summary from CERT advisories. These are all the, you know, remote attacker, unauthenticated, can compromise your system completely. These aren't minor things like someone can DDoS your print server. These are just the ones I picked out from a one-week CERT summary, and I couldn't even fit them all onto the slide, of, you know, attacker completely take over your system. So our systems really are relatively insecure and have lots and lots of vulnerabilities. So it doesn't, you know, the NSA doesn't have to have technology they've recovered from a crashed UFO or something to do this. They just need someone who's slightly better than a script kitty. Uh, national security leaders coercing people to hand over encryption keys. So these are basically the legalized form of rubber hose crypt analysis. You're required to hand over your data or else, and they come with a built-in gag order, so you can't talk about it. Um, there have been various court challenges to this because obviously organizations like you know, Microsoft and, and Google and so on and so forth don't like the fact that they're being forced to hand over customer data and they can't even say that they're being forced to do this. So there's court challenges ongoing to try and uh, at least allow them to say we're being forced to do this by the government. Um, but effectively what these do is they bypass any crypto at the service provider. So you've got this really strong encrypted link going to Gmail. So you just go to Gmail, Google with a national security letter and say hand over all this customer's data. Um, a couple of providers have actually fought this, so laugh a bit, silent mail, and so on and so forth. Um, and they shut down rather than comply with the government requirements. The problem with this is that if you're Google, you can't really afford to shut down your entire business. You, you pretty much have to comply with the government. Um, getting back to Bull Run again, what else have they done? Well, they've covertly influenced and or overtly leveraged commercial products design. So they've made designs to the system so that they look like they're secure, but they're not actually secure. Um, and I'll flip through this. This is basically some of the details of how they've done this. So here's two notorious examples. One of them is the dual ECDRBG, which is a random number generator that was backdoored by the NSA. Um, this is a long history of random, uh, random number generation has a long history. In about 1985, there was the original generator, which was specified as a banking standard. It's called the X917 generator. It's pretty straightforward. Three lines of code in the spec. If you actually look through the entire X917 standard, you almost miss it. There's this appendix at the back, which has got about half a page saying how to do this. It's really, really simple. Um, it used triple Ds because when it was specified, that was the state of the art. In 98, NIST adopted this um, in another standard called X931. They basically adopted it verbatim, but they said use AES instead of triple Ds because that's the currently fashionable thing. 
And then they realised that they can't keep using this forever. So NIST, over a period of quite a number of years, um, worked on an official standard for generating random numbers. And this was kind of a design by committee, but it was done in series rather than in parallel. So some guy mucked around with it for a while, someone else came along, didn't really understand what the first guy had been doing, but added their own bits, someone else came along, and so it sort of just bloated up over time with people not really understanding why these features were there, but we'll add a few more features of our own that we think are cool. Finally, it was published in 2012. Um, and it had three main generators in them. Some of them were pretty straightforward. So you've got the X917 generator, those three lines of code updated to use something called HMAC, which is, again, a more modern algorithm. It's about half a page. Um, some of them aren't really that sensible. There's one called the hash DRBG. It's about five pages of code. Now, again, remember, you've, got, you've gone from three lines of code that works pretty well to five pages of code. And some were really just stupid. I mean, there's no other appropriate word to describe the dual EC DRBG as a stupid generator. Um, it's pages and pages of maths. If you look at the standard, it's complex, it's awkward, it's incredibly slow. It's a really, really stupid design. Um, the NSA also pushed really, really hard to get into other standards. NCX 9.82, which is a banking standard, an ISO standard, so it's an international standard. But the thing is, you know, you look at this and it's, as I say, it's so stupid. It's, you know, just obviously bad. No one in their right mind would actually use this. Here's, a, here's an example from a um, Norwegian mathematician who pointed out flaws in this. I've never met anyone who would use this generator. There's BBS Fanatics, which is a related generator. They show up all the time, but they're all nutcases. So nobody would actually use this thing. Um, yeah, obviously, no one would take this thing seriously. Except for these guys. Um, so all of these companies implemented it and everyone else, and those guys as well. And RSA went even went one step further. They actually made it the default in their crypto library. The thing is, OpenSSL, they were in this previous list, so they didn't actually use it, though. Um, their implementation contained a fatal bug. So if you tried to use this generator, it wouldn't actually work. Um, so it prevents any use of the algorithm. And because it's FIPS140 validated, you can't actually fix it. So once you've got this fatal bug in your crypto, you can't fix it anymore. Um, so the theory is that no one had actually used it because no one complained that it didn't work. You know, since it didn't work, it was so obvious that it, it was a failed generator. Um, so, okay, can you fix it? Well, no, it's been FIPS140 validated, so even though you know it's broken, you can't go back and fix it without invalidating the certification. Even more scary, though, the whole point of the FIPS140 validation is to catch faults like this. So this thing was evaluated originally, and then apparently many hundreds of times after that, um, and every single one of these validations failed to catch the fact that this generator, it wasn't subtly flawed, it simply did not work at all. It failed, if you called it. Um, yeah, as, as the guy, the program manager for this uh, put it, that's an awful lot of fail. You've got hundreds of validations of this, according to the FIPS140 standard that's supposed to catch these things, and none of them caught the fact that it didn't even work. Um, okay, so I've said it's a stupid design, but you know, what's the actual problem with it? It's... I really don't have enough time to go into this, and it's kind of mathematical. Um, I'll put these slides up after, after I finish the talk. Um, you can go to that blog, and that's a pretty good, if somewhat mathematical, discussion of what the problem is. But here's just one issue. Um, when an SSL or TLS client and server talk to each other, they exchange a 32-byte value called the server and client random. This is to make sure that all, um, all uh, data that follows that has this random value mixed in so you don't get two identical sets of messages exchanged. It's a 256-bit value. Um, if you generate it using this particular generator, you've leaked something called the pre-master secret, which is the value from which all crypto keys are derived. So basically, if you're using this particular generator to, use, to do SSL or TLS, you have no security. It leaks your keys. 
Um, the ESA tried to make this attack even easier, so they submitted a proposal for an internet standard um, for a mode in which you leak even more data in that initial handshake, so, you get in, so it's even easier to compromise that random number generator state as part of the initial handshake. So, okay, why would RSA have done this? Well, the reasoning probably is it's specified in a NIST standard. Um, yeah, they've got lots of government customers. Uh, a primary requirement for some of these libraries that are FIPS 140 validated isn't necessarily, is it secure? It's just, is it FIPS validated? Um, they implemented all of the generators in the standard, including the obviously stupid ones, and the speculation is that someone went to them and said, well, you know, it would really help us if you implemented this generator and made it the default. It was actually a bit more sinister than that, though. They, they apparently were paid $10 million to implement this thing and make it the default um, in their library. And the NSA then used this to force adoption. So RSA adopted it long before it became a NIST standard. And the NSA then went out and said, well, you've got this major crypto library that already uses it, so you really, really need to make this a NIST standard because it's already being used in practice. And that was the result. And if you look at Microsoft's reason, um, they basically had the same reason for that. Um, they had a major customer who was asking for it. No need to guess who the major customer was. OpenSSL had the same thing. It was requested by a customer or a sponsor as one of several deliverables. So basically these organizations or these crypto vendors were being paid or incentivized by US government agencies to implement or add this broken generator to their systems. But, you know, okay, so RSA and some company called Lancopay um, didn't actually make it the default. It's only the default in RSA, so it's probably not that bad. You have to explicitly configure it. But then again, if you look, at, look back at the earlier New York Times news story, um, the NSA hacked into target computers to the consumers it looked like the, sec the security remains intact. You've got an organization that has said we're going to, you know, fiddle with these systems so that it looks like they're secure but they're not. So if you've got a configuration switch you can flip, it's just a single bit somewhere that you need to flip to make it insecure. Um, that's a huge and valuable target for an organization like the NSA because they can flip the config and suddenly it's insecure but it appears to be working fine. So how would you backdoor it? Um, it was first pointed out in 2005 that this system is easily backdoorable. Um, in December 2013, this guy posted this online proof of concept exploit showing how to do this. Again, I won't go bother going into the details. It gets a bit mathematical. But basically, if you, generate the, if you can generate the parameters used for the generator, which NIST did, and I'll show you where those came from in a minute, um, you can backdoor the generator, and once you observe that SSL handshake, you can then get all the crypto keys. Um, okay, so this generator uses something called the NIST ECC curve. So ECC is elliptic curve cryptography. It's this very trendy thing that the NSA has been pushing very hard for everyone to adopt. Hmm, okay. Um, and the thing about this is you need to generate a standardized set of parameters known as curves for interoperability because it's so completely configurable and flexible you can do anything you want. So to be able to talk to someone else, you have standardized curves. NIST defines several of these. Um, that's an example of one of these curves. You don't need to understand it. It's just treated as magic. Um, anyway, so how were these generated? Well, they were generated verifiably from a particular seed value. So I give you a seed, you can go through all these computations and find out that the curve parameters are the same as the ones I've given you. What is the seed value? It's that value. Where did it come from? The NSA. Uh, we don't know how this was generated. Uh, Jerry Salinas, by the way, the guy that provided it for the standards, is a known ECC mathematician, but no one has any idea what the seed value represents or where it came from. Okay, how would you use this to backdoor the NIST curves? Um, let's say that NSA knows about an attack taking 2 to the 64 operations on one of these curves. And, you know, again, this, this is merely a hypothetical thing. We don't know what the NSA knows or what they don't know. But uh, this is an example of how you would backdoor it. 
2 to the 64 attack, it's a one-off computation. It's an awful lot of work, but it's a one-off computation. You do that once and that's it. You've backdoored everything using these parameters because these are shared parameters used by everyone. And let's say they can, NSA can recognize from some, again, mathematical magic that I won't go into, um, whether you've generated one of these curves, and let's say one in a billion of these curves a week. And that's not actually as unlikely as it sounds. If you generate, say, an RSA key, you generate two large prime numbers, multiply them together, that's it, you've got an RSA key. To generate an ECC curve, it's, it's actually, you, it's this very careful walk through this minefield of all these booby traps you've got to get around. ECC is very flaky in the sense that there are many, many, many ways to get it wrong and many, many vulnerabilities. So you've got to exercise a vast amount of care in generating these curves to make sure you haven't generated a curve that's vulnerable to one of the huge numbers of attacks that they're vulnerable to. Um, so, you know, it's not that unlikely that there's some vulnerability that the NSA knows about that we don't. Um, so it's actually a very, very lengthy involved process. There's a huge number of checks you have to perform. Basically, you generate a curve, you run it through all these checks. If it doesn't pass, you generate another curve, you run it through all these checks again until you get one that passes. Um, so, the example, NSA generates billions of these seeds values, runs them through the checks, um, eventually they get one that has the characteristics that they know makes it a weak curve, they then publish the seed value and they can say, you can take the seed value and generate the curves yourself, okay, generate them from the seed, we verify they're the same as the NIST curves or the NSA curves or whatever it is. Um, and now they have something that they've backdoored but no one else can figure out what the backdoor is. And this scenario, exact, this, this speculation is due to a, a mathematician called Dan Bernstein who's a very smart cryptographer. This scenario exactly fits how the NIST curves were generated. We don't know, you know, what the NSA's motivation was or what they've done, but if they wanted to backdoor them, this is how they would have done it. So Europe has its own set of curves done by a consortium called BrainPool, and they recognized this in about 2005. They said these seeds are unknown. We have no idea what the significance of these seeds are. They used the digits of pi to generate them, so you've got this verifiable, well-known quantity as the seed. Um, and they also said there's no proof that there's no backdoors in this. So you can use the brain pool technique to actually start from pi and generate your own curves so you know that they've come from a known good value. Uh, the response of this result was this. When this stuff came out in October 2013, there was an RFC, which is an internet standard published, on saying let's use the brain pool curves instead of the NIST ones. Um, on the same day, a whole bunch of the major open source implementations added support for these curves. So basically within 24 hours of someone saying, don't trust the NIST curves, let's use the brain pool ones, all these open source implementations had added support for it. Um, other implementations, the more closed source ones, added support within a couple of days. I've never seen this working group move this quickly on anything. I mean, they can't even decide on where to go for lunch in the day, and yet they all made these changes within a day. What else could they have possibly influenced? Well, IPsec, you look at this and it just, you think it can't possibly have got this bad by accident. Um, there's some comments from Bruce Schneier, you know, it was a huge disappointment, nobody's satisfied with the result. The, the NSA made this main contribution, the main overt contribution was something called ISA-KMP. Um, contains numerous errors, explanations are missing, the document contradicts itself. You'd think they really can't have done this on purpose. Well, yeah, apparently they did. Um, so there's a long history behind this kind of stuff. This is an OSS field manual on sabotage. The OSS is a precursor to the CIA. Um, and it tells you about things like, you know, it's based on this universal opportunity to make faulty decisions, adopt a non-cooperative attitude, and induce others to follow suit. Here's some examples of some of the things you can do. Um, and this is taken straight from this particular manual. Bring up irrelevant issues. Refer things to committees for further discussion. Haggle over wording. Uh, aggravate court. This is, you know, for anyone who's, who sort of works in a large organization, can you tell the difference between this and standard operating procedure in your company? Well, this is actually a deliberate sabotage manual. Um, there's some more here. I haven't been able to fit some of these on, but there's some really neat ones, you know. 
Um, be pleasant to inefficient workers, get them, give them undeserved promotions, discriminate against deficient workers, complain unjustly about their work. And then there's number 11, I'm not sure if that's legible or not. Whole conferences when there's more critical work to be done. <laughs> anyway, um, so if you want to go and grab this for your own organization, someone scanned the whole thing and put it online. But you know, this, is, this is goes back to, this is done in World War II to sabotage the German war effort um, in occupied countries like Norway. But there's a long history of this kind of stuff. So, okay, was it deliberately sabotaged? Well, probably not. It's just designed by committee. And, you know, one of the lessons from um, Bruce Schneier's commentary on that is lesson one. Crypto protocols should not be designed by committee. But in any case, it doesn't really matter that much because the NSA has tools for subverting it. Um, this is an example of one of the things for subverting IPsec. Again, I won't go into the details. It's sort of technical and geeky and there's lots more slides. Okay, so they can, vert, they can subvert IPsec, they can also subvert the routers. Uh, when you own the router that's doing the IPsec crypto, it doesn't really matter whether you can break the crypto or not. So the NSA basically owns, these are the program names, and again, there's, uh, do, a, do a Google search for some of these code words, you can find details online. So they own Cisco routers, they own Juniper routers, and they own Huawei routers. So speaking of routers and security risks, um, there's all this fuss made about China about one to two years ago about the fact that they're a huge security risk. And, you know, Chinese telecom provider Huawei is a national security risk. Huawei is a security threat and there's proof, says Hayden. So we'd better go with this really expensive US-made gear, Cisco and Juniper, um, rather than the cheaper Chinese gear because we can't trust it. So, but actually, given that the US has backdoored the Cisco and Juniper gear anyway, instead of this, you know, Chinese telecom provider, whatever, provides it as a, as a security threat, what about NSA as a security threat? NSA is a security threat, and there's proof, says Snowden. Slight rewording of the same phrase, but based on what Snowden has revealed to us, it's probably more the latter than the former, or at least as much the latter as the former. But in any case, um, you know, in terms of this crypto, we don't actually need any of these NSA-proof protocols. Any well-designed, appropriately deployed crypto will be NSA-proof. And not just NSA-proof, but CIA-proof and FSB-proof and mother-proof and cat-proof and anything else like that. And in some cases, we don't actually need crypto at all. You know, we've been hearing a lot of this stuff about the cloud. Okay, let's leverage the synergy of the cloud. Nah, let's not. Don't put your data in the cloud, and then the NSA can't get to it. Leverage the safety of your local server. Um, so this is an example of a, a rural address in New Zealand. Um, I, I don't know, there's probably some equivalent in Australia. But basically, yeah, if you've got your data stored in a server somewhere in your own country where it's not going to be on US servers or going over international networks, it's a lot harder to get to than if it's stored with Gmail. Now, admittedly, there's a counterpoint to that in that Google is a lot better at running a mail server than many, many companies are, so there's a certain incentive to use Google. But really, just don't put your data where the NSA can get it. And this goes back to a, something that predates uh, crypto called geographic entitlement. Um, basically, you have to be at least this close to the data in order to access it. Here's a prime example of geographic entitlement. Um, this is Koenigan and Ritchie on a PDP 11, 7, something like that. Basically, you had to have physical access to the computer in order to use it. And that's very hard for someone to, you know, access to attack over a network. So in plain English, yeah, don't put your data where the NSA can get it. And we've already got this, we're already seeing this in Europe. There's pushback in Europe against exporting data to the US. So basically, we want our data held in Europe and not held in the US on cloud servers or whatever. Now, admittedly, the, the counterpoint to that is only the European spooks can get at it rather than the US spooks being able to get at it. So the conclusion, there's one very telling quote up there from a guy called Drew Gross. He's a forensic scientist, and he says, I love crypto because it tells me which part of the system I don't need to bother attacking. And it does, it points out, you know, you've got crypto here, ignore that, attack everything else around the outside of it. 
Another guy, Nate Lawson, again, very clever crypto guy, has said that um, people hear that crypto is safe and hear that crypto is strong and they confuse it with safe, but it's not. It can be very, very strong, as that example of AES 256 showed, but fundamentally unsafe. Okay, and five minutes for questions. Thanks. Peter, that was fantastic. Steve Wilson from um, Constellation Research. Um, given everything you've said, what's your advice to the, um, to the underground movement, the crypto party, etc., who would have us all use TOR or PGP to escape the NSA? So we know approximately that the NSA has done an awful lot to subvert TOR. Um, on the other hand, TOR has some very smart guys working for it. So, you know, be aware when they're using TOR that it's not a completely secure system. If you want to escape government scrutiny, then it will make you more secure but not completely secure. Um, it is a major target, but it's still, as far as we know, relatively secure. Sorry, that's a bit hand-wavy. Um, the problem is, you know, we only know from what Snowden has revealed to us which things are being targeted and in what way, but we don't actually know how far the NSA has managed to penetrate um, TOR or compromise the TOR exit nodes. Um, you know, for things like Tor, it's always been known that if you can monitor a whole pile of the exit nodes, and quite possibly NSA can, um, then it's not necessarily that secure. So it might be secure against the Chinese government, who can only monitor stuff within China, but not necessarily against the NSA, who have fairly well global um, monitoring and surveillance capabilities. Okay. Thank you. Yep.